Welcome to Abstracts. This week, human experimentation. These are all identical twins used for medical experiment. Hundreds of twins from all over Europe were brought to this camp. They were numbered, but their origin and even their names are unknown. There is no doubt that Hürt and Bruno Beger wanted to exploit the enormous potential provided by Auschwitz. Here they had access to what they termed human material, Jews from all across Europe. The experiments began in a prisoner of war camp in Manchuria in 1942. The Japanese scientists used chemical sprays, injections, blood samples and rectal smears. They were, uh, bodies were put up on uh, autopsy tables and then they would cut them off and so forth to get their uh, organs. I did vivisections at the time. The experiment was conducted on a living Chinese woman who was infected with syphilis. She was sleeping because she was alive. The blood poured out just like water from a tap. I have no courage to record things like this now. They would wake up from anesthesia and cry out, don't hurt my children. I cannot forget these things ever. So hello, welcome to Abstracts. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Andy. Very good to see you. It's yeah, been a you while. Too. It's been, been a, a while, while since we did this. About three weeks, hasn't it been? About three weeks. <laughs> About three weeks, hasn't it been, sir? Hasn't it been, Governor? <laughs> All right, yeah. mate. I'll do it like this for the rest of it, then. <laughs> yes, it has. It has indeed. We had a little break, but we deserved a break, quite frankly, I think. Yes, very busy. But we've got something quite quite cool to do. Well, not cool. Well, uh, cool's the wrong word, isn't it? Cool is the wrong word. Yeah. Everything was decidedly uncool. Everything was decidedly dark, depressing. And actually, I've honestly found this one of the most difficult ones to research. Mm. Not out of difficulty of finding the research. Mm. But uh, of just dealing with it and reading it. I, on one day, I thought I had food poisoning. And I, really? I think it was just disgust. Mm. Yeah, it's, um, it isn't nice stuff. It's definitely not for the squeamish. If we laugh during it, it's purely because it's so horrific. We don't know what else to do. But there are some pretty horrible things. So if you are squeamish, we apologize. We're talking about basically human experimentation yes experimentation abuses of experimentation mm-hmm. i mean you'd call it bioethics yeah right so ethical abuses um there's kind of two sides to this there's the boring side and there's the horrific side we're gonna be talking largely about the horrific side so the horrific side is all of these abuses that took place throughout history well not all of them but we'll, we'll select a few and then the boring side of that is there's all these codes of conduct that come as a result of that so there's the Nuremberg Code, there's the Declaration of Helsinki. A lot of these things came around and about because of uh, these abuses. So this is kind of a two parts, uh, as in th- there's two parts to this. We'll t- only talk about the abuses. Uh, mm. We won't bore you with the legislative stuff that came after it. In a way, it's just like we have laws because people do bad things to each other. Mm. Now we have um, ethical codes of conduct because research was unethical for <laughs> a very very long period of time yeah most of the 20th century actually yeah and there was a little bit of a part in the middle that you might know about where it went really really deeply darkly wrong mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. really darkly wrong um but to begin with before mm. we start going into the really dark systematic kind of stuff abuse of human abu- beings yeah real abuse of human beings i'd like to start with something that's just really quite mad and that by today's standards, you'd think it was just mad. You'd just laugh this person out um, of what they were thinking. But back in the 1920s, this was not so crazy. So have you heard of a guy called Ilya Ivanov? 
Uh, I haven't, no. Right, so he... Okay, so I think he was a geneticist. He was more or less a geneticist, and he got big by um, his... Well, through his work in artificial insemination. He had success crossbreeding various species and things like that. And he wanted to continue his work. But his big plan was to cross a human with an ape of some kind. Um, And this wasn't controversial. It wasn't a controversial idea. It wasn't controversial in Europe. It wasn't really controversial anywhere. In fact, he got a lot of support from the scientific community for this ideas. At that time, there's this big drive towards like atheism in a way. Atheists are really becoming quite prominent. So there was a lot of, there was a lot to be gained from Ivanov's research from the atheists. Um, And kind of the public were in a state where they wanted to know whether or not it was categorical that humans evolved from apes or if people who said that were actually committing some vile sin. They wanted, it was either God or we either evolved and kind of, that's what was going on politically mm. all over the world. Okay. Um, Ivanov himself, his motivations for doing it aren't clear, but it's all the other politics around him that kind of support the work. It was supported in Russia by intellectuals, top politicians, and it was kind of pushed through by radicalists within the Russian government um, who had real futurist aspirations. They kind of wanted to really take over. It was supported by another guy as well called Nikolai Gorbanov. Have you heard of this dude? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, he was, he was a chemical engineer, dead close with Lenin and Trotsky. He was a Trotsky supporter, all, like, all these people. Okay. And so to begin his, his experimentation crossing humans with apes, he wanted to lead a research expedition to West Africa. And this was supported by the French because Ivanov had been uh, trained in, in France, okay. um, done a lot of work in France, and he was supported by the French um, and also the Russians. Um, by the Russians, he was supported because they wanted to bring chimpanzees back to Russia to further these insemination experiments, etc. But his first was going to be in West Africa, in French Guinea. And so originally what he wanted to do was he wanted to pay local women in dollars Okay. To inseminate them with chimpanzee sperm. Oh my right. god. So that's what he wanted to do. Local women are like, no. There's no way you're going to do it. I think he quite underestimated. <laughs> oh, so, so he informed them. He told them that's uh, it's informed he was like, consent he was looking for. That was for. his plan. He wanted to like pay them. And they were like, no. We're not going to get uh, inseminated by chimpanzees. But the thing was, he, he, he kept getting uh, more and more into this idea because when he first landed in French New Guinea, he was told stories by the locals that sometimes chimpanzees would come down into the town and rape the women. Oh. So he was bolstered by this kind of idea if he indeed ever heard that idea. He could have just made up. The right, idea, but that, the that's what he maybe said afterwards. Then. Yeah, okay. totally. The local women wouldn't let them pay him to inseminate them with chimpanzee sperm. So he inseminated female chimpanzees with human sperm. And the sperm was most likely from his son, who he was travelling with. What? He travelled with his son. <laughs> yeah. What on earth? He travelled with his son, and he travelled with a, I guess, a slave, really. And then he got the idea that he wanted to inseminate the local women without their knowledge. Oh. So he was like, right, so under the guise of, like, a medical examination, yeah, okay. I'll just inseminate stick oh, in a little bit of sperm a, is this a gynecological examination <laughs> or is he like okay i'm just gonna you know wrap your arm up and i'll give you you know I've here's an no injection idea. also pants down what, what <laughs> does it specify how he did that or it, it didn't specify because uh, he never did it right oh he never did it he never did it uh, and the reason he never did God it he never did it because 
he went the basically the French mayor or the guy the the French governor of French New Guinea at the time was like no as well he was like no you're not just inseminating women with chimpanzee sperm without their consent yeah right no shits so Ivanov this pisses him off it basically pisses him off and he writes a letter to the Russians well of course he's given up his own son for this He's given everything, and now they're telling him no. This is it. Oh, my this God. Okay, sorry. Carry on. So he writes a letter. He writes a letter to the Russians going, these crazy locals and uh. these bourgeois French, right? They're just like, they're not letting me do it. I want to do this. I want to do that. So the Russians hold a committee. They hold a committee. Yeah. And even they are like, no. If you're going to wow. inseminate women, you need to get consent. Blah blah blah. So that's why. You wow, never... and, and when we, this is the twenties. This is nineteen twenties. Okay, so that's yeah. fairly forward thinking in you know in terms of uh, the sort of ethics of the time. This is it. Consent is wasn't it. always sought. So no. <laughs> so the institutions were doing their job at this point. At that point, yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely. But what's kind of interesting is is obviously the man was not successful. But what is kind of interesting about this and how it does come into the politics is where it was supported from. So obviously it was supported by Bolsheviks in Russia for reasons that we'll get onto later, but it also got support from the United States um, in the form of the Atheist Association. Really? So a, yeah. So there was a dude called Howell S. English, and he gave this speech um, on behalf of the Atheist Organization supporting Ivanov's work. He said that this work would prove evolution. And he knew that it was going to be cross-species insemination. Well, yeah, because he was really kind of influenced by this dude called Hermann Klatch, okay. who was a German anthropologist who had what was called a polyphyletic theory. And the polyphyletic theory was that certain human beings descended from certain apes. Okay. So if you'll excuse the obvious racism here, um, he basically says that yellow-raced people descended from orangutans he said that black people descended from gorillas. He said that white people descended from chimpanzees. And he, dis- and he said that Jews descended from gibbons. Okay. He didn't outrightly say Jews, but it's implied that he did because he makes mention of what's called the brachycephalic people. Right? Okay. Brachycephalic was kind of an anti-Semitic slur saying that they have different nose structures. They're, they're basically Eastern European Jews or Ashkenazi Jews are different than the biblical Jews. They're like weird. So it was like part anti-Semitic propaganda to say that we're descended from Gibbons. Did, did he start ranking them? Because at the moment you kind of go, well, at least he recognises we all come from apes. Yeah, no, but he was saying that yellow race people come from orangutans. This is Clatch. This so, is the polyphyletic oh, theory. And he was like, Clash. oh, the, the colours are similar. Right, so oh, Howell, Howell jumps on this okay. from the Atheist Association. So in 26, Ivanov's assistant distanced himself from this kind of work. He was saying he did basically confirm the scale of this operation because they were doing it like loads and loads and loads. Yeah. But out of the chimpanzees, so out of the chimpanzees that were brought to Russia, only four of them survived. So he couldn't really get on with doing his work because he brought all these apes over, but so many of them died. Almost all of them died. Only four chimpanzees like survived out of 20. Oh, really? And he had to build like a special premises, um, like a primate nursery and things like that. His work in 1927 was reviewed by academies of sciences. Now, scientific people in Russia were like, yeah. this is just stupid. What okay. are you doing? Uh, but then the new Russians 
these new reformists, these like kind of Bolsheviks, the 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 growing in that they were like, no, 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 no. We almost want to create this new socialist man. Oh, uh, okay. Here so it go. had like this kind of stuff. Yep. So as a result, they got more money from the Communist Academy, which had then split into the Academy of Sciences. It called itself the Academy of Sciences. And the, <laughs> the idea was that what it had to do was to get five Soviet women to agree to the experiment with written consent. Okay. Well, given the size of Russia, I'm sure you can find five. And they did. But none of these women were going to be paid because, of course, they just had to have a special interest in science. Uh, okay. To do it. Um, they found the women, but by the time that they found the women, all the chimpanzees were dead. Well, thank God for that. <laughs> and they, uh, they, No, sorry. They only had one orangutan, but unfortunately, no yellow-raced people. To try and to try and test them on. More chimps arrived apparently in 1930. They got more over, but Ivanov himself was arrested in December 1930 for his support of the international bourgeoisie and was exiled to Kazakhstan and died two years later in a wow. camp. God, there you go. That's serendipity, <laughs> isn't it? That's very lucky. Propped up and supported by the Russian government and then sent away to Kazakhstan to die because he was too bourgeois. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Which uh, is... <laughs> fully, fully not. Really, what was the Russian thing? So the Bolsheviks, what they wanted to do was this thing. They'd become interested in this thing called rejuvenation surgery, which was pioneered by this dude called Sergei Voronov, where he took male chimps, he took the sex glands, and he implanted them into men's bodies. Oh, no, I've heard about this. And yeah. what it was supposed to do, it was supposed to result in improved sight, lower blood pressure, new hair growth, and your muscles regain, like, strength or yeah. whatever. Um, and this is the idea for this new this new kind of man that you can rejuvenate. So the new Soviet man is basically a combination of positive eugenics and artificial insemination with state-controlled psychological changes. So in crossing apes with humans was just an extension of that work. You couldn't really carry on with this rejuvenation surgery because getting chimps into Europe was really expensive. Setting up like monkey estates was really expensive, but this Voronov guy had one. And so Ivanov went to Voronov very often. And what they actually managed to do was they transplanted some women's ovaries no. into a female chimpanzee called Nora. And Jesus. they inseminated Nora with human sperm. And this worked. They didn't reject it. The body didn't reject it. It works. Oh, no. Nora died. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I want to say thank God, but... Of course she died. Uh. But the idea was with that through this eugenics process through Ivanov's eugenics insemination process it would yeah. remove love from reproduction because in the bolshevik ideology love held humanity back this is very brave new world very huxley super super crazy and and there was another russian guy called serebovsky um, he was a russian eugenicist as well and he believed that it would end the bourgeois institute of the family yeah. So no evolution, no nothing like that. Like the family is just a bourgeois construction. So that is uh, that is brave new world, but everyone's an yeah. individual. Um, it's really weird. I mean, if, if if you haven't read it, anyone listening, read it because everyone talks about 1984, mm -mm. but that's very communist state future. Whereas brave new world is almost more accurate. You know, where sex has become you know has become a big part of the culture. Individualism is is 
surprised. But that is it. You, they break down the family. No one has mothers and fathers. Everyone is basically bred in a test tube and genetically modified. And actually, they start genetically modifying people or genetically breeding them so they hit, hit a fat... Pardon me. The gin, which we haven't spoken about yet, has already taken no, effect. We're going to get into but that. But yeah, they're, they're genetically bred to be part of a certain class. Um, and yeah, so everyone's an individual. Everybody is genetically engineered. That's exactly what it sounds like. Yeah, that's pretty much what it was, the new Soviet man. Wow. So that's all. All of what I've just said is covered in a really, really good article. It's called Beyond Eugenics, The Forgotten Scandal of Hybridizing Humans and Apes. It's by a guy called Alexander Etkind, who's a historian. Right. Um, and it's absolutely a fantastic article. It goes into well more detail. But I just thought that was a, a really funny, crazy story to kind of wet our beaks a little bit. Um, yeah, well, be- before we get into the real... Real abuses. The real abuses, yeah. Which, which actually, I mean, it's difficult because you want to kind of address these things with a certain amount of sensitivity, mm. of course. But like, like you've already said, you know, we probably will laugh simply out of... I mean, when I start talking about, you know, the removal of testicles, mm-hmm. um, we're going to be squeamish. We're going to... But yeah, uh, let's say with wet it's our It's a beaks. coping mechanism. It's a coping mechanism for, uh, for what's going to come. But before we do get into the deep and the heavy stuff, should we talk about the gym we're drinking? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So Lone Wolf. Lone Wolf. Cloudy Lemon Gin. Brewdog. Brewdog, so this yeah. is from the Brewdog Distilling Company, Scottish company. Aberdeenshire, in fact. Mm, I remember when Brewdog first opened. I lived in Edinburgh at the time. Oh, and yeah. They opened an establishment on the Cowgate. Okay. And there was just this one, and it was like super cool, Brewdog all over Edinburgh. And then it's just uh, the open one in London. It's yeah, massive. It's huge now. Brewdog is huge. I think yeah. there's one in Manchester, all over the shop. Yeah, and now they do gin, apparently. Yeah, so uh, apparently, you know, although it's one of the um, most recent gins um, to hit the market, along with Adams is now doing distilling, distilling as well, um, this is part of a huge operation you know, obviously a huge brewing operation. So apparently it's the biggest, or it looks like the biggest when you turn up to the distillery, the biggest operation in terms of the new distillers. Um, but yeah, cloudy lemon, cloudy lemon gin. Apparently it's steeped in lemon lemon peel. It is nice. Mm. Yeah, we're, we're serving smooth. it with lemon. Um, so it's very lemony, very smooth. Because one thing I said to you before we opened it, I said I've had a lot of orange gins or clementine gins. Yeah, that's right. And they're quite sharp. Yeah, they are. They can be a bit just tart sometimes. Mm. Mm. Yeah, but this, this really hasn't given me the same effect. No, not at all. And it's that, that citrus is really cutting out the booziness that we got with the Roku last time. Yes. Yeah. Um, was it Roku? It's Ro- yeah, Roku, Roku gin, yeah. Because yeah. that was really... You could really taste the vodka base in that. But with this yeah. one... It's just it's a super cloudy gin as well itself. Um, yeah, really nice. Really cloudy. I've got to say, the Roku gin, I've been testing that thoroughly since <laughs> the last podcast. With plenty of ginger, I hope. With with well, Yeah, although people look at you a bit weird. You go to a bar and, you, and they say, what would you like in it? You say, have you got any ginger? And they look at you like you're from another, well, not from another planet, I guess. You know, I guess. Well, yeah, because they've not pre-chopped that, Matthew. Have you ever worked in a bar? No. Right, so <laughs> after having worked in a bar, if some dickhead comes up to you and says, I want a gin with, oh, have you got a slice of slice of ginger? It's, no. I've got lemon, lime, um, that'll do. Yeah, they have to go get the cucumber from the yeah. restaurant. I've had that. <laughs> like, how dare you? Yeah, I'm that guy now. Have you got any ginger to get it with it? Well, that's a Japanese gin and tonic, actually. Oh, God, get out. Oh. 
Yeah, <laughs> I know. They're probably spitting in it. I think, oh, it's so pleasant. There's something floating in it. God, that's so fancy, isn't it? Not brown, I hope. It wasn't brown. No, never, never, never. Never bits. But yeah, very nice gin, very nice gin. And a fantastic bottle. It's got a very nice uh, design. The design of the wolf on the front, the lone wolf itself, does look like a tattoo, a chest tattoo a UFC fighter might have. Mm, it does, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the sort of thing you have right in the centre of your chest. Yeah, big chest piece. Mm. It's nice. Yeah, no, but it's good. I'm, I'm happy with it so far. I'm sure it'll stand us in good stead. And it's good to well, uh, already have t- a little taste of home. It's a little o- taste of the north. Well, absolutely. You know, I'm half Scottish. Mm. As am I. The best half. The best half. <laughs> the tougher half. Yeah, exactly. The real half. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so that's what's already having an effect on my speech. Absolutely. Me too, actually. It is. A, it's pretty good. It's very good. It's very nice. Very, very nice. nice. Lawn Wolf, ladies and gentlemen. Lawn mm. Wolf. So, shall we get into it? Let's get into it, man. Yeah. So. Now we've covered Ivanov, Apes, and some of the mentality of the early 1920s in Russia. Yeah. What happened after that? Yeah. So, I mean, we're going to go on to talk about the Nazis and we're going to talk about the Japanese and what's called Unit 731 as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because they got, up, they got up to a few bits and pieces as well. However,. I've been speaking to a lot of people, and they don't even realise that Japan was part of the Axis powers. They didn't, they didn't realise that Japan was part of the Second World War. Uh, it might anyone who already knows this might think, well, obviously, what's happened to the education system? But some people just don't know this. <laughs> well, it's true because yeah. you know, I, I mean, maybe I know this more than others because my grandfather actually served and fought the Japanese in the mm. Second World War. So to me, it was almost obvious. He was in Burma, which is now, I believe, Myanmar, and he was out there in the jungle. Um, with the Chindits fighting the, the Japanese. But, yeah, so what unites the Japanese on the other side of the world, Italy, which was another power in, in the Axis uh, alliance, and then also Germany. Uh, so very quickly, before we get into what went on, it's probably worth saying what united them. And so actually, at that time, pre-World War Two, there was this idea that they were the outsiders. So you had this language of the haves and the have-nots, Mm. So you've got to remember, at that time, you still had you know, the British Empire or the legacy of the British Empire along with the French Empire. You have the US as a power. And, and we were all over Asia. We were all over Asia. Mm. We were all over Africa, as were the French predominantly. Mm. And they felt that it was unfair. It was unfair that we had plundered the world before they had. And they felt that actually, they started framing it as national survival. So Germany... Japan, Italy, all felt that they should, in you know, in an effort to save their nation, also go on a total war effort and start preparing for imperialism. A- and actually, in some papers, they've called this fascist imperialism. Mm. So they start preparing. And, and if you think about Japan specifically, they had this idea of Asianism, which is very comparable to Aryanism. So we get taught in school about Arianism and, you know, the white-haired or the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Aryan, the, 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 the ideal, Nazis. The Ubermensch, right? The Ubermensch, yeah. You take the, the sort of the Nietzschean idea of the the Superman almost. And distort it. Yeah, yeah and, and the Asians, or, or I should say the Japanese, had this same concept. And they had this other concept of just being hyper-military uh, or hyper-militaristic. And they were also terrified of the communists, which sets the scene for what then happens. So they had this red peril. And this all gets kind of wrapped up in this radical statism where they they essentially look to the state uh, to answer all of these problems. 
you know, they were looking at the the rise of France and Britain in as global powers, and they looked to the state to to answer these ills. And actually, I was thinking, if you think back to our Brexit episode, we talked about the Lockean uh, exclamation, right. which yeah. is the idea that don't tell me what I can't do. The idea that you value control. There's there's uh, a contrast to that as well, which is the Madisonian or the James Madison who talks about republics. The Madisonian exclamation, which is one way you go, you deal with it. <laughs> and there's this idea, it's almost like two at once. It's like, don't tell us what we can't do. We're going to take over the world as well. We're going to be an imperial power. But also, on an individual level, people were going, you deal with it. The state can deal with it. I find that happening a lot now as well. Yes. There's a lot of problems, but nobody wants to personally deal with it. We'd rather externalize it. Well, the, the terrifying thing is that this was framed as a need for equality. Now, you might look back and go, mm. well, you can't just say that just because you guys have empires, equality means that we should have empires too. But that's what, that, that was how it was being framed at the time. This idea of national survival. Equality for all peoples? No, that's where, it, that's where we have a slightly different idea now. But it was being framed as equality. It was being framed as, you know, we need to be on an equal footing. It's very unfair. And they wanted the state to give them that equality. Hmm. It's not totally dissimilar to today. Now, it is a bit different. We've had civil rights movement, movements since then. Like you say, it's all about equality for people. But it, it's interesting how this started from... Almost, I, I mean, I, I think the fundamental premise was wrong, which was that we should also have an empire. Right. Right? Yeah. But from that one fundamentally incorrect, in my opinion, premise, equality and looking to the state for answers took them to Asianism and Aryanism. You had fascist imperialism. So are we talking about Japan as thinking they're just vastly superior to other Asian countries. Yes. Mm. And you've got to think they're right next to China as well. China mm. is a communist country. So they were not particularly happy with their neighbours either. And they actually took over, as as you'll go on to talk about, they they took over Manchuria, which is the northeastern part of China. And the way they did that, the army essentially just took control. Mm. So um, if we talk about Japan first and, and the Nazis second, well, with Japan... They essentially, the army staged an explosion um, on the Japanese railway track in Manchuria because they had control of some of the railway tracks in northeastern China at the time. And uh, they just went on this bombing campaign. So it was essentially a conspiracy. It was they made it look like the Chinese was attacking them and then the Japanese just flooded northeastern China with their troops. And they also then started assassinating people in Tokyo. So the army started assassinating like the finance minister. And eventually it led to, after a few attempts, they, they, they did, well, they essentially tried a coup d'etat where they, um, they, they assassinated the prime minister and they seized control of central Tokyo. Eventually, the rebel faction was defeated, but somehow the army had managed to fund the media so much so that okay, there was a coup d'etat and they were defeated and there were the rebels. However, Manchuria was largely seen as a positive thing, mm. right? So it was meant to be uh, essentially an idea of well, this is the, the future of Japan. This is you know, our imperial ambitions being fulfilled. That's right. And they took and maintained it. And somehow they managed to get the other politicians on board because through the media they convinced the public at large that this was a good thing 
Mm. And you had the Japanese walking out of the League of Nations saying, well, this is, um, you know, this is uh, or, or not autocracy, or the, uh, autonomic. I've only got the psychological word in my head. <laughs> but yeah, you know, the, the, this is a new kind of diplomacy and they're walking out of the League of Nations. So, yeah. yeah there was this idea to put Japan firmly in the driver's seat and almost reinvent the nation. Mm. Autonomous become. diplomacy. There, it's just come to me. Ah, autonomous diplomacy. That's what they called it. Sounds like a punk album. Yeah, something like that. You know. Yeah, yeah. Rancid autonomous diplomacy. <laughs> but yeah, that that's how they got into Manchuria, and that's how they kept it. And so then, of course, they set up Unit 731. Well, that's the thing. They saw an opportunity when they took over Manchuria. Yeah. And yeah, you spoke about getting the public on side and, and all that mm. kind of stuff, but one of the primary people that they were well, not people, but one of the <laughs> first institutions they had to get on side was the military. Well, it was the military that, that yeah. did it. The military were the people that. Well, they the got really bit. behind a particular guy. And Shinto. this, yeah, yeah, good old Shiro Ishii. Oh, right, right. I yeah, say yeah. good old. Um, Shiro Ishii. But he became, he pretty much became popular with the army because he created a, it was effectively a machine that would purify water on the front lines. Mm hmm. And they got used to lugging that around, so it helped. He helped in a lot of uh, in a, a lot of military um, avenues, uh, yeah. primarily. But absolutely, like when they took Manchuria, they saw the opportunity to begin doing some real research into what would make Japan super dominant. And a lot of this would be human experimentation. I've just got to make a little note here that what I'm going to say here really is just the tip of the iceberg. I am just really scratching the surface. Yeah. And there was a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff was done. But just to tell you about who this Ishii guy was uh, to begin with. So it's called kind of the Manchuria Incident. It's kind of known as. Incident. The Incident. Mm. Well, it depends where you are. I think it's the Manchuria Incident if you're in Japan now. Yeah. Um, it may have another name in China. Um, yeah, but this genocide. Was, yep. <laughs> but this was the taking of Manchuria by Japan in 1931. Um, and he, Ishii himself um, was the founder of these Japanese human experimentation facilities. He wanted to develop basically biological weapons for military prestige. He wanted the Japanese army to be one of the most formidable, one of the scariest, just one of the best all over. And he got back in for the military because of this water purification system. Mm. So he set up this, what was called the Epidemic Prevention Laboratory. This would serve as the HQ for his experimentations. This was, this effectively was Unit 731. Yeah. Um, and then they also built another unit very close to Manchuria called the Togo Unit. Um, across all the units in this time, Ishii was in charge of about 10,000 people. Mm. That's how many people he controlled. He used prisoners of war. He used Soviets, he used Mongolians, he used Koreans, and he obviously used Chinese, lots of Chinese. And between the years of 1940 and 45, he tortured and killed about th th like 3,000 people. And that's be that's just in the period from 1940 to 45. That doesn't take into account all the people who died before 1940. Yeah. Um, but the first facility that he built was rubbish. Okay. Um, it didn't work. 16 people, it, like they revolted and they escaped. Oh, yes. So what they did is they built another prison, but it was a prison within a prison. So there was like a main building and then they built another building around the outside of it. And this was in Pingfang, an area also close to, close to Manchuria. So what were they doing in there? 
there's basically all kinds of the worst kinds of stuff. <laughs> like like what yeah. you don't ever want to happen to you happened in there. There were vivisections happened. Basically, a vivisection is opening people up while they're still alive to see what's going on in there. Um, and you do that because you might have injected them with ground up mites to see if you can give them hemorrhage <laughs> yeah and I, pass on fevers and things like that but there were append um basically a, a, appendectomies there were tracheotomies where a tracheostomy is where you open someone's throat and you stick a pipe in it and you try and get them to breathe through the pipe if anyone's seen that movie three kings that happens in that mark mm. Wahlberg gets like shot and there's a build-up where he can't breathe so they you see it quite a lot in films yeah 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 they have to cut a little pipe in there and they have to release the pressure all the time so that's a tracheostomy so they did that um as i said appendectomies they shot them they cut their arms open and sewed them back up and this was all under the guise of like frontline medical care so what they were doing they were like oh yeah we're training medical doctors for the front lines um to make sure that they could deal with this kind of stuff i mean actually if you think about the attitude that they had towards the what we would today call participants mm. at the time you called them subjects i guess yeah. um they told the locals around the factory you would say or the prison uh, that it was a lumber mill and they called the subjects logs because you can burn or yes, cut did. a log up. Mm. That's simply how they understood the subjects. They were logs, like a, <laughs> like a commodity. Completely. And when they needed more, they used the secret police or the police force out in the local towns. They rounded a few people up for no reason and carted them off to the lumber mill in scare quotes. So uh, th that's the kind of attitude they had towards them. This was it. There was again this this higher attitude. We are like what you were talking about. Yeah. The um, but there was loads of there was there was the obviously the physiological studies like cutting people open like we just said. But there was also pathogenic studies. So they'd be intentionally infecting people with various things. And one of these things was epidemic hemorrhage fever. Okay. And one of the and what they would do is they grind up mites, um, mix them with a bit of salt water. They'd inject it into the thigh of what they called an ape. Uh, yeah, well, in, in the in the literature that, that they were publishing, apes. Yeah. yeah. Um. So the ape gets a fever, then they take the blood from the ape, they inject the blood into another ape, and then the other ape gets a fever, but that ape starts peeing protein, starts peeing protein out. The ape apparently became feverish at thirty nine point four degrees C. Mm -hmm. And so what they'd do is when the ape became feverish, they would perform the vivisection. They would open up the ape um, and have a look at the infected organs. They'd look at the livers, the kidney, the spleen. Um, and But the problem was, was that people did kind of start catching on because apes don't get feverish at 39.4 degrees. And when you say people started catching on, that's the international community. Yeah. 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 You know, they're giving lectures and publishing articles. Yeah. Yeah, they're, 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 they're telling people yeah. about their findings. They're just yeah. not being very specific about how they're finding these findings. Yeah, and on what? Exactly. But people do catch on because apes do not become feverish at 39.4 degrees, but humans do. Mm. Um, and that's one of the things that really, really let people on. They did experiments in, obviously, plague. Um, <laughs> they didn't fed people with plague they yeah. give people frostbite but going back to the plague so so really kind of jumping ahead a little bit because this was going on for a number of years and obviously I can't go into everything but all the tests they did 
plague frostbite going into plague this is actually a statement from somebody who worked in that unit mm. and what he said for <laughs> for plague what they and, and this is a quote from him that from his writings in 2004 a guy called yoshio shinazuka and what he said was was first we collected blood from them and measured their immunity on the next day we injected four kinds of plague vaccines into four of the subjects. No vaccine was given to one subject as a control. A week later, vaccines were given again. A month later, we injected one cc liquid with the same number of plague germs in every subject. All five were infected with plague. The man that had no vaccine was infected first. Two or three days later, he became feverish and pale. On the next day, he was dying and his face grew darker. He was still alive, but the members of the special division which, had menis- which administered the special prison of Maruta, Logs, Logs, okay. Logs, that's Maruta, that's what Maruta means. Oh, uh, okay. Brought him naked on the stretcher to the dissection room where we awaited him. Lieutenant Hasada osuculated uh, his heartbeat on his chest, so he's basically waiting until it's a decent pace. Okay. And at the moment the osuculation finished, it was like, let's begin. So when, that would be when they cut them open mm. and have a look for plague. That's when the vivisection would take place. Wow. In terms of frostbite, this is a statement from the sergeant major of police. Um, no, 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 sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a statement from the sergeant major of police, a guy called Satoru Kurakazu. He said, I saw experiments performed on living people for the first time in December 1940. I was shown these experiments by researcher Yoshimura, a member of the first division. He was another doctor um, that got kind of involved uh, in these experiments. Hmm. Um, these experiments were first performed in the prison laboratory. When I walked into the prison laboratory, five Chinese experimentees were sitting on a long-form bench. Two of them, Chinese, had no fingers at all. Their hands were black. In those of three others, the bones were visible. They had fingers, but they were only bones. Yoshimura told me that this was the result of freezing experiments. And what they'd do was that they'd dip a finger in ice-cold water for 30 minutes. Jesus. And just kind of see what happens just to determine the skin temperature, etc. Um, but this guy, Yoshimura, who was doing these particular frostbite experiments, um, after the war, he became a f- professor at the School of Medicine. He was given an order of the Rising Sun Third Class for his work in environmental adaptation science. Mm, of course he was. So that is really skimming over some of the things that went in, but there was plague, vivisections, frostbite experiments, just torture, of thousands and thousands of people. Well, one of the things that Shiro Ishii really wanted was to be essentially known as the granddaddy of chemical warfare. That's right. So did. that's what a lot of this was also targeted at. So, I mean, I mean, when you talk about the plague as well, of course, they were essentially trying to work out how they could use it as a bio- biological weapon. So they were initially they started loading up where on planes you would have um, places to drop missiles on the wings. They were loading that, loading them up with you know boxes full of fleas that were infected with the plague, mm. and they would just go out into the local population. They'd go drop out, them, drop them. They they would drop them over. There was a few different villages they would drop them over, but I think there was one. There's because um, the thing is, there's still testimonies out there about this. You can watch documentaries about this, and you can see you know there's even one documentary where the bomber himself, and we'll come on to why he hasn't been hung, the bomber himself is on this documentary talking about it and many of the doctors and uh, they would drop these fleas over the village and to see how effective that was they basically they donned 
these great white outfits, a bit like the KKK they looked like, but with these gas masks. And they marched into the nearest village, or into this village rather, um, maybe a week later. <coughs> and, and there's actually a picture of them. You can see them coming over the fields. It's honestly like a, ho- like a horror film. They march into the village, grab people, drag them out into the fields, and just cut them open, just to see what happened to their organs, just to make sure they definitely had the plague. So they were cutting people open in the fields. After dropping these fleas on them, yeah, like a week beforehand, of, of people would just come and, and cut and, people and cut them open, open in yeah. the field. Yeah, in the field, they just drag them out into the nearest field and they'd cut them open, and, and then what? Just leave them there. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Mm. And and they were trying to develop the plague essentially as a biological weapon for use against the U.S. So there was at one point they they sent a load of balloons over the, with firebombs on them over to the U.S. Yeah, that's right. They drifted. They used the the wind effectively, yeah. and they had sandbags, didn't they? And mm. what would happen is because the helium in the balloons would obviously uh, dissipate over time. Yeah, they would drop sandbags. So the sandbags would be on timers, and they'd drop the sandbags off, and so the balloons would stay elevated. Yeah, periods over time. That's why you had bombings, like a random... I'm sure I heard that on a podcast, of it, like talking about a random bombing that happened in America somewhere. Yeah, it might be Minnesota or Mississippi. Or the, yeah. It begins with an M. There was a place where it did... It, I think it might be the church. But yeah, there was these firebombs that were going off. And that was not the, the initial aim, really. It was just to make sure they could do it. They were then wanting to load that up with, uh, with plague bombs, essentially. So fleas. That's what they wanted to use against the US. Oh my However... God they lost the war before that could take place. Because they found that the, the most effective way of doing it was loading up ceramic missile shells full of fleas, just you know, like ceramic pottery almost, huh. and just dropping it. So that's what would have been landing on the US um, if we hadn't, or if they hadn't rather, used nuclear weaponry. So you sort of say, well, it's terrible what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but good God, the biological warfare that would have taken place anyway simply from fleas being dropped over the US would have been horrific. So insane. To think mm. that you could do that, float yeah. a balloon just across the planet. A plague balloon. A plague balloon across the planet. Yeah. Yeah. So when we talk about the interballistic, uh, so the, the intercontinental ballistic missiles that North Korea is trying to develop, yeah, okay, that's a threat, sure. But they could just load a balloon up with fleas and let it go. That's... That's uh, you wonder at the kind of mind that could think think that up. Well, but they were thinking that, national survival is what they were thinking. That's it. Well, if you talk about national survival, just kind of on an aside point, it was interesting I read recently in a book about primatology, mm. whereby there were some people who were researching a particular tribe. I can't remember which tribe it was. But right. they took them up in an aeroplane. They'd never seen an aeroplane before this tribe. Uh. And the, they were like, whoa. And this tribe said, leave the door open. Uh. And the the pilot was like, no, it's freezing up there. Like, you'll freeze. Because yeah. they obviously weren't wearing modern clothing, all of that course. kind of stuff. But they loaded the plane up with rocks. And when the plane was flying over, they chucked the rocks out because a rival tribe was across the way and the pilot said that he just witnessed bombing in Neolithic man. Wow. Wow, that's that's incredible. Yeah. Wow. They loaded up with rocks and chucked them out. The first thing they thought was, we're going into the sky. Yeah. 
Let's make sure we can throw some rocks on our enemies. <laughs> isn't that just bonkers? Jesus Christ. Yeah. God, that's really deep set, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. In us, the violence that's within all of us. That's it. So that was the Japanese. And then, of course, there were the Nazis, mm. which our education system, you know, loves to tell us all about. Um, but So we thought we'd start with the Japanese. The Nazis obviously really, really went deep and dark. Uh, the reason the Japanese, you don't hear so much about them is actually because MacArthur uh, wanted the research. So MacArthur was the general at the time, or the, the, the army general in the US, and he wanted the research, and Shiro Ishii was essentially saying, well, we're going to burn it, so you better give us immunity. And they were given immunity. They were given immunity in secret by MacArthur. The Soviets were not happy about this. The Soviets wanted to prosecute for war crimes and crimes against humanity, um, but the U.S. said it was a piece of communist propaganda mm. um, and nothing had taken place there. Of course, it later came out that it did. But that's why you can you can watch documentaries. Google it. Have a look at the documentaries. The History Channel has a really good one. And people who worked in the, uh, in the prisons and, like I said, the bomber who dropped the fleas, they, they will talk about it. And there's even one guy. There's one guy. I saw an interview with one guy and he is saying, you know, he's still very firmly entrenched in the idea that it was a good thing. Mm. Everything that took place was a good thing. He was very happy about it all. And they were logs. They're still logs. logs. He, there's absolutely no empathy. There's no remorse. Or Maruta. Maruta, yeah. And so uh, these people are still out and free because they were given immunity by the US. <laughs> Nazis didn't get it so easy. Cause <laughs> unless you went to NASA. Unless you went, unless you went to NASA, yeah, yeah. or and to helped, Argentina, basically helped develop the American space program. Yeah, yeah. Well, this was it. This was it. If they could get the research without you, and they had everything they needed, they'd you know they'd, they'd try for war crimes and take the research. Mm. But they they definitely wanted the research. So the Japanese were quite clever in that way. They said, "We're going to burn it. We want immunity. We want this internationally recognised immunity before we hand over anything." The Nazis didn't do that because they obviously lost the war and were, were taken over and, and everyone, you know, we got there first. But So with the Nazis, there was a couple of things that actually paved the road for this. Mm-hmm. So there was a real focus in German medicine on experimental methods. And this is a little bit what you were talking, like, like what you were talking about earlier with the atheism. It was this move into experimentation, empiricism, experimental methods. So to become a doctor, to become a medical doctor you had to do a research-based thesis. So you had all these scientists, essentially. They were scientists first, and as it would later come to be discovered, they were really doctors second. Mm. The Hippocratic Oath was not front and center for these people. And around that time... That being first do no harm. Yes, (laughs) exactly, exactly. And, And... Yeah, first to do no harm. First do no harm. And that wasn't even on their list, let alone being first. Because then at the same time you had the eugenics movement and uh, then you had this racial ideology that that got injected into that. There's this idea of hereditarian medicine um, and this is actually the doctors, this is the idea that the doctors should act in the interests of the nation and the race rather than foremostly the patient. So like you say, first do no harm. The idea of acting for the patient first and foremost was not part of their ideology at the time and it was the collective yeah. it's almost like the borg the borg have you ever seen star trek uh i was more of a star wars man myself ah right well there's uh there's this group called the borg in star trek and basically they're a hybrid 
uh, robot organic group, but they serve a hive mind. Okay. And what they do is they go around the the universe assimilating people into the Borg. Mm. Um, and that really kind of reminds me of communism a little bit <laughs> because <laughs> like all mind, of your, yeah. um, you know, you just become part of this hive mentality in a way. Yeah. That's interesting. You're not a family. There are no families. There are no, there's no nothing. There's just serving the higher power, the queen in a way. It's like a hive again. Yeah. Um, That's a bit like the, the Japanese ideology at the time as well. Um, Serve the emperor. Serve the emperor, which interestingly they thought was a middle way between democracy and communism. Serving the emperor. Serving serving the emperor. Who was the emperor? Is that Hirohito at the time? I believe so, yeah. 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 Um, But yeah, I mean, before the war, actually, the Nazis did, I mean, comparably a lot of good. So they actually, um, they passed laws against animal experimentation. And you had the the Lübeck disaster which was essentially a load of newborns being given a, being given a, a vaccine for TV, TB. Mm. And they... Um, the, yeah, the Lübeck tragedy, yeah. Yes, and, and, and they died because they managed to contaminate the uh, syringe with TB, a live form of TB. So the very thing they were trying to vaccinate them against uh, went into their system. And so there were actually a lot of um, codes of conduct and things, like I mentioned earlier, that came out at that time. So the Nazis had this regulatory framework, which was world-leading at the time. But just over time, obviously, there was this general Nazification of values that took the most regulators and most advanced bioethical framework in the world and turned it from the best to the worst. <laughs> It's incredible, really, that they managed it. So this is why it's always really... People always say, you know, you need to be aware of the past so it's not repeated in the future. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy to turn around and say, well, we're so advanced now, something that backwards could not happen again. No, no, no. These people were advanced. These people actually had a lot of the same regulations that we have in place now, but they had an ideology that enabled that to be put to one side. So because we need to be really careful. If you do look at domestic policy... Uh, under mm. the Nazi party, a lot of very positive things were done. Education system, yep. um, militarization. They wanted educated people. Sanitation and Sanit- hygiene. All of that, you know. Um, not to undo what no, they did. No, no. But actually, it's just worth always stating it. I once it. met a girl in Austria and I brought that up. <laughs> she was not happy that I brought that up. Yeah, but I mean, it's almost like this is actually more of a case against being... Or sorry, for being cognizant of yeah. ourselves, right? Because the fact that the Nazis were so bad is a real counterpoint to the fact that they did so much good in the in you know in the first, let's say ten well not ten years, five years when they first came to power. Uh, they did so much good, and it's really important that we are very well aware of that. It's not like they were some Machiavellian, moustache twirling group mm. of people. They were in many ways. But when you look at their domestic policy, they're doing a lot of good. And so when we see ourselves doing a lot of good, we need to always be really, really cognizant of the fact that very easily that can, the tables can turn. Mm. Which is why when we look at statism, I mentioned radical statism earlier, when we say, oh, you deal with it. Let's you know, use the state to answer all of our problems. Well, that's, that's very dangerous because that's what was, what was being done here. This does bring us back to our Brexit episode as well. It does, yeah. But when we look to the government to say, we want you to enforce all of these laws, you know, to to enforce all these equity laws. You say, well, why would you want the government to do that? Because one government from now, you'll have someone like Trump. If you're a Democrat and you want mm. equity laws, 
Well, now you've you've given all this power to the government, and now it's somebody you don't want. Mm. The one thing to be hence why America has guns. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. One thing to be said for the Western nations, they've done some terrible things, which we're going to come on to. Um, But at the very least, it was the freedom of speech and the freedom of the press that then exposed it. Yeah. Right. Whereas, unfortunately, you know, Nazi Germany and Japan had to be conquered in order for it to be exposed. So there was there's terrible people on both sides because it's human nature. Um, but the political, the, the political systems. God, the gin. I'm gonna have to stop drinking <laughs> during these podcasts. Jeez, I, I mean, actually, a minute ago, I served myself the stronger. I, you probably saw me trying to dilute it desperately. <laughs> this gin is so strong. Um, so it's probably interesting to make a delineation between uh, the Japanese and the Nazis. Yeah. Um, because. Yeah, there was this kind of superiority with the Japanese, but the primary concern with the Japanese was becoming the most influential, dominant biogenetic power um like ishi like you were saying about what ishi wanted to achieve so surely were the nazis yeah but also the nazis pretty much put it to exterminating a group of people as well so yeah well i mean the japanese were doing it simply because it was like here here are some here are some here are some logs logs. yeah exactly this is really useful for us we also don't like communists yeah but yeah the the uh the germans decided they were gonna use these communist logs to further our own kind of kind of thing Whereas the Nazis were slightly different. Yeah, I mean, you slightly know, different. They saw the Aryan race as, you know, like the Uberman, as you said. And they started getting rid of the Jews. They slowly started delicensing Jewish doctors. Mm. Then there's also something that's not often talked about it's the Romani and the Sinti people as well, um, colloquially referred to as gyps- gypsies, of course. Mm. Um, about 25 to 60% of their population was wiped out. You have this kind of slow delicensing and the the pushing out of Jews from the medical establishment and many establishments, of course. And then you had the sterilization laws, which uh, Mm. initially was targeting, only targeting, um, schizophrenics, people with muscular dystrophy. Uh, So basically people with disabilities, you know, epileptics, people that they classified as being of severe mental defection. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Even even alcohol... uh, Alcoholism, God, I'd, I'd be gone. <laughs> Even people that are alcoholics, they were also gone. So get rid of it. And, you know, an estimate, I think it was 340,000 people were forcibly sterilized in Germany and between thir- uh, 1933. Uh, 340,000 between <sighs> 33 and 45. And interestingly, the, the law didn't, the sterilization law didn't actually specify race as a grounds for sterilization, um, but ethnic minorities were vulnerable to you know it being used against them mm. um so you had these mixed race children of uh black french troops and even germans who, who were classified rhineland bastards when you translate it and uh they were between 13 and 16 years old and they were sterilized and uh, like i said the gypsies as well or the romanis and the sintis <laughs> to, to uh be more precise but, I mean, it was terrible, really, what was going on. Like, for example, there's Eva Justin. Have you heard of Eva Justin? I have not, no. So she was essentially influenced by this guy, Robert Ritter's work on the primitive nature of the Romani people, or the Roma people, um, in their eyes, anyway. And they, they Primitive how? Primitive, just they, they believed they were primitive. Right. It was just a belief that they had they were primitive, uh, but cognitively. And ethically, they were not able to be socialized that was one of the things they'd say they were not fit for socialization so it's not even like they could be 
bought into. So you could sterilise people, but um, you can't even bring them into uh, the social world, they believed. But this this Eva Justin, she went to an orphanage and she analysed the psychology of 100... How many was it? 148, um, 150-odd children uh, at this Roman Catholic children's home. Uh, and at the conclusion of the study, she sent them all to Auschwitz. Uh, sh- you know, she studied 100, 150 children and sent them to be murdered at the end. Um, that's And she got a lifetime award in 44, I believe. She, before the end of the war, she got this lifetime achievement award because the Nazis were so proud of what she'd been up to, um, proving the primitive nature of the Romani people. Oh, my God. But it's yeah. like, you know, especially when you've got no real definition for what primitive is, other than it... Not Aryan. Yeah. Yeah. Because what is primitive? You know, you could describe primitive as some, if you believe in evolution, you mm. could effectively say that reproduction is primitive. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it was totally There's baseless. No it was not scientific. Baseless. It's just nonsense. It was pure racism, which is basically everything that the Nazis stood for, because they believed that they were superior to other races, which is the definition of racism. Yeah. They were a racist state. And, um, There's an essential difference between you and another human being yeah. purely based on the race. The race. Or, you know, where they came from. Interestingly as well, I mean, you know, you had these Jews, like I think Russia. Russia was uh, a famous um, Nazi who did experimentation and he was a Jew himself. No, uh, Eppinger, I'm thinking of. He was a Jew. and But he signed up to the Nazi party in 33 and got into the SS and whatnot. And, and he was he was okay because he was doing terrible enough things that he clearly was loyal to the states. Hmm. So it wasn't... I, I mean, clearly they make some disambiguation there. They say, well, you know, we, we hate Jews and Jews should be exterminated. However, yeah, you're, you're doing terrible enough things to your own people, so we'll, we'll let you in. A bit like Fox News when they bring on... You know, the one racist black guy they can find. Yeah, right. You okay. know? There's this one Tory guy and they always dish him out. <laughs> They're always like, Okay, this is a this is a race issue, just show that we're not racist and they they, yeah. they always put him there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and he, this poor man <laughs> he has to defend <laughs> Yeah. Like racism in his party, you See, know, it's Well you had the same thing in, in the Nazi party. However, these Jewish doctors were terribly abusing Jews and Roma people and Sinti people um, so yeah but uh, so then you move into this horrible position where the physician is essentially not serving people it's a state selector you know and it, it's diagnosing useful life and useless life which is what you see when you see these films hmm. uh, at the camps you know you're, you're to the left or you're to the right when you're when you're lining up and being selected and that's, that, that's interestingly what Mengele, the guy, one of the most famous, Joseph Mengele, he was one of the most famous um, experimenters of the Nazi world. Um, that was his primary job. His day job was selection. It was to the left or to the right. Are you useful? Are you useless? And that's the diagnosis. Imagine going to the, G, the GP and hearing, you know, a diagnosis of useless. <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible. But that's what they were doing. And so... Initially, I spoke a minute ago about sterilization. That's what they were really interested in researching initially. So, for example, one of the best methods they found for women was uh, they would take formalin. So, do you know formaldehyde? Yes. 
Formaldehyde, for anyone that doesn't know, is essentially a preservative. It's used for all sorts of things, even for like making car doors, and uh, it's used for all sorts of things in photography. But in my school, actually, when I was younger, we had formaldehyde that was preserving some kind of body parts. Mm-hmm. You know, you see like brains floating in it, and uh, the vat broke, and they evacuated the entire school because, I mean, it is carcinogenic. It is, it is a human carcinogen that causes cancer. It's really, really bad for you. You shouldn't inhale it. They were taking formalin, which is essentially 40% um, formaldehyde and 60% something else, either water, sometimes sometimes there's methanol and all sorts of other shit in there as well. They would take that, that formalin, so it's not even, you know, they would take formalin and they would inject it into women's ovaries. That was one very effective method they found. And... <sighs> Yeah, horrific, right? And then for many of these people, while they're researching them, they would then cut out the ovaries just to make sure that they'd done the required damage. Because, of course, they wanted to roll this out on a wider basis. Just to make sure. Yeah, just to make sure when they're researching it, they were then cutting the ovaries out afterwards. And uh, they were also using x-rays to burn the ovaries and then, of course, cutting them out as well. And they did the same thing with men. So, for example, the penis and testicles were subject to radiation for about 15 minutes and two weeks later they removed both of the testicles for examination of course no consent was given that was sterilization i mean imagine that you go to the doctors for a routine checkup and there they are saying oh this is one of the things that things they were saying as well you know the germans were very very focused on efficiency Mm. i mean that's of course the general kind of discriminatory joke this is is that's a stereotype of germans now uh, and it probably comes from the fact that that's what the Nazis, you know, in terms of the, those jokes, come from the fact that that's what the Nazis were focused on. They were focused on efficiency. Efficiency of sterilization, efficiency of killing. So if you come on to methods of killing, you say, well, they were really essentially focused on how efficiently could you kill someone? Mm. What's the best method? Because mm. anything that doesn't kill someone 100% of the time, we need something better. So, for example, they were trying alkaloid poisons, so there was this one case that's documented where they, they had four Russian prisoners and uh, these German doctors, doctors, I mean doctors seems like the wrong word, stood behind a curtain, they poisoned their food with this poison and they, res- they observed the reaction of the prisoners. It's said in the documentation that some of them died, there's only four, so let's just say two of them died. They then killed the other two and performed an autopsy. Right? And, I mean, normally autopsies are performed to find out why someone died. In this case, they knew why they died. They mm. shot them. They were trying to find out why they survived the poison. So you had poisonings. They they're actually, not doctors. They're executioners. They are executioners. They're just executioners. And it's it's the, the creativity with which you can execute someone. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And, yeah. I mean, you know the cyanide tablets that you mm, see in yeah, films? Absolutely. People bite down bite on them. Down forms up yeah, yeah. it shuts down all your systems yeah yeah the nazis you know, developed that um which himmler the head of the ss eventually then used himself so, they said hitler took that too he just bashed down on a cyanide tablet inside that bunker yeah yeah and of course you go well if they developed it they sure as hell tried it tried it on a load yeah. of others as well a load of uh jews and whatnot um, this is particularly bad. In studying septicemia, so poisoned blood, essentially, uh, they took pus containing strep, which is like a bacterial streptococcal. Uh, streptococcal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which you find on your skin all the time, but you can get infections as a result of it. They took pus with strep in it, and they injected it into the inner thigh. When an abscess developed, they then extracted it and injected it intravenously into the bloodstream. 
Um, and this was done almost exclusively to Roman Catholic priests. So they create a streptococcal cyst, really. Yeah. And drain and they, it. And then they put intravenously it in inject it. Straight into your bloodstream. Um, they, in the documentation, they said it didn't invariably cause death. Therefore, it was considered inefficient. So on to the next method. The immune uh, system was presumably better at combating it than they are. The had. Nazis would have hoped. Yeah. They found one particularly good method was repeatedly injecting tuberculosis into the bloodstream. That was apparently quite effective, as you can imagine. Um, but they found the most efficient form of medical execution was the use of uh, intracardiac phenol or benzene. I mean, phenol is essentially a paint stripper. Um, it, it's really toxic stuff. Um and they were using this, they were just basically pumping it into people. Uh, and they were killing about 30 to 60 people a day just by pumping this into their bloodstream. Because what, what would their eventual plan be? Right, okay, we're just going to round everybody up into a camp and just inject them like, like we line up cows in, a, in an abattoir and just shoot them in the head. Yeah. It's just, that's what they were going to do. Yeah. Yeah, you sort of think, well, why can't you shoot them? Yeah, right, that's what I mean. It's yeah, like, yeah. you know, since the Dark Ages, we've been... Uh, that's why I said executioner. It's just we've been chopping people's heads off for ages. It works perfectly well. Yeah. Like, it's just pure, sick, sadistic creativity. Yeah, that's what it is, isn't it? You know, even even poison bullets they were experimenting with. They'd, t they'd hand-select a few prisoners and they'd shoot them in the upper thigh with a poison bullet just to see what happened. Just in case, like, just the bullet case. didn't work on its own. Yeah. I mean, even mustard gas, they were injecting liquid mustard, um, or mustard gas, liquid equivalent. They were getting people to inhale it. They were getting people to have it rubbed onto their skin or, or you know, wounds exposed to it. Um, there were all sorts of horrible mustard gas experiments. They were just constantly looking for ways of killing people. I mean, they even experimented with malaria and typhus as well. Mm. You know, like the Japanese, they were looking at biological Absolutely. weaponry as well. Um, Pathogenic warfare. All with the word efficiency tacked onto it so yeah and and then of course there were you know the regenerative the regenerative and uh transplantation experiments that were done and um, so you had these healthy polish prisoners that were selected and uh a lot of them were young polish girls and the they didn't try to put monkey parts into them did they like the russians well did there was that there was that as well yeah but even just the basic like regenerative studies sound grim they would take both of their legs break all of the bones in their legs into several pieces with a hammer uh, and then they'd join them sometimes even without clips they, they wouldn't necessarily join them uh, sometimes they were joined with clips and splints and put into plaster casts um, sometimes entire parts of their fibula like their shin bone were taken out uh, sorry tibia um, were taken out and it what were they looking for if we break the tibia? How long does it take to yeah. rejuvenate under certain conditions? Yeah. So it rejuvenates, yes or no, in a plaster cast, a splint, yeah. all these various things. Pretty much. They were like, you know what, we've got, like the Japanese would say, logs. We've got just human subjects that we can use here. Um, they were taking entire limbs. They were taking shoulder, like from the shoulder, the arms or sometimes the legs. And, you know, they're putting them in these sterile, moist dressings and sending them off to a hospital nearby. And apparently it was a futile attempt at transplantation. It was essentially just a great big waste. Um, and these then donor prisoners were just killed with a lethal injection. So it didn't work. Didn't work. 
put him down. No, exactly. A lot, a lot of what was happening as well, a lot of these studies were really badly designed. You think of German efficiency as the stereotype we mentioned a minute ago. You think of German science being great and hence the NASA program, etc. And there's many famous German scientists. But a lot of the research that was going on here was really badly designed. Not like the Japanese research, which apparently, despite its inherent evil and nastiness, was quite well designed in some cases. Mm. Most of the Nazi research was not. Um, so at least the Japanese were controlling in some way for various conditions. Least, there was a yeah. scientific, some kind of scientific method there but with the with the nazis they're just well th- th- there was an attempt at scientific method um but they were just doing it badly you know so they would have control groups in many cases um but yeah it was just badly designed so there's a lot of stuff online a lot of these articles you can find where they talk through the design of the research and why it's inherently flawed and why essentially the, the research tells you nothing a lot of it some of it some of it told them you know, something, and the US Air Force and the uh, Royal Air Force in the UK took that research. Actually, I'll come on to that in a minute um, with the altitude sickness, but or the altitude effects. But there was a bit more that was done to aid the military specifically. So we talked about sterilization and methods of killing, you know, in a sort of general sense, but they were also doing a lot of research to help the military, as you'd imagine. So the the main cause of death on the... On the um, battlefield was hemorrhage so blood loss obviously you know you get your arm blown off blood loss so that's the main cause of death it's actually not being shot through the head and you're instantly dead it's the blood loss so they were really interested in stopping that i imagine it would have been quite hard to get a headshot with the technology with the kind of weaponry they had you know yeah. from 100 yards away with a 2-2 rifle how often are you going to get a headshot you know if you're not a sniper you're, you're more likely to be blown up you're more likely to have these kind of appendage um, problems like bleeding out, like an arm flying off, or yeah, like the field experiments that the Japanese were doing, cutting people up and sewing them back up, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and it, it was the blood loss that was the main cause of death. But this Sigmund Rascher, I mentioned him uh, a little bit earlier on um, when I was thinking of Eppinger. Rascher, he's the guy that we all know as the guy who, who loved uh, human leather. So when you watch some of these old films, you'll see lampshades in the Nazi cabins. A lampshade is made out of human human skin. Well, this is the guy that popularized that. So this Sigmund Rascher, um, he was a he was a surgeon, and he was involved in a lot of the experiments I'm about to come on to. But he promoted in this case polygal. So he was hugely into polygal, but uh, and this was essentially a pectin-based substance um, that he believed would stop bleeding. Mm. Right. So. He had, in his eyes, the answer to hemorrhaging. He's also the guy who was selling off human handbags and, and stuff like this. So He's uh, making uh, wallets in his spare time. Yeah, and selling it to his colleagues. So a real sicko. Um, yeah, to you. <laughs> There's another person who did that. He was called Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. He, used to, he was a serial killer. He used to oh, chase yeah. people down, kill them, make lampshades. Yeah. Well, this guy's essentially Dahmer, but with institutional backing. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's, 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 yeah, I mean, well, if you can see Andy's face, he's not smiling. It's kind of like just exclamation of wow. Ugh. Oh, anyway. so that's the problem with not having video. You yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're sort of facepalming here. But yeah, so what he was doing was they were, they were simulating combat wounds 
um, by just amputating the extremities, amputating arms, fingers, legs, just the, the amputating all sorts of things without anaesthetic because, of course, that causes vasoconstriction. You know, your right, arteries okay, yeah, and yeah, veins yeah. start yeah. to... So they did it without anaesthetic because of the adrenaline and all the effects that has. Uh, they were shooting th- shooting them through the neck in some cases, through the chest, just to see whether this, this polygal worked. And the real thing, at the, you know, at the time, the US uh, or, or the West... They had penicillin. It was discovered. It was used on the battlefield. And Russia saw polygal as a potential alternative. He said, yeah, well, we've got a German equivalent. It wasn't a German equivalent, but they would take. They were opening people up, trying to demonstrate that he could do the same things as penicillin, just killing people left, right and centre, because he was trying to show that that was an antibiotic and it really was not. It didn't do anything. This is another example of the bad science. The bad, an bad science. The actual thing exists. It's called penicillin. It's proven. It's used on the battlefield. Yeah. Like, why do you need to do these experiments? He, he simply started from, I want this to work, and I'm going to <laughs> work backwards and prove it, as opposed to saying this could work let's see if that's, that's the case the scientific method was thrown out the window for this man he's trying to launder yeah trying to launder into his uh, into his research well he was later tried and found guilty of um, faking his research by himmler because by himmler yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah well that's his downfall because he claimed to have three children right and, and he had like i think uh, a wife who was quite much older than him but she was 48 when she was apparently bearing her fourth child and he wanted to show that you could bear children into your older age because that would then help um, proliferate uh, and extend the Aryan race. Mm. So he was trying to show you could extend um, the childbearing age. Well, yeah. the childbearing age. Oh, no, yeah, sorry, the childbearing yeah. age, yeah. Yeah, and, and so he was claiming he had three kids. He had a fourth on the way. But during the wife's fourth pregnancy, um, this guy, Rasha, was arrested for trying to kidnap an infant. And it was found that all three of his kids were kidnapped or bought, which, I mean, it's much for muchness, isn't it? And uh, Himmler felt personally insulted because this guy, Rasha, was very close to Himmler and Himmler was, re- was reporting all of his research to Hitler himself. And he felt personally insulted and he tried him for, you know, kidnapping infants. How they, dare you make it like a fool of me, almost. Yeah. yeah, and they found scientific fraud, all of these things, and he and his wife were executed. So... I mean, a little bit of justice in a in a weird way, but it's based. Purely what did his wife do? I don't know. She was just involved, wasn't she? She, was in, <laughs> she knew she they weren't. Married the guy. Well, no, she knew she wasn't pumping out Aryan children. She knew she wasn't pregnant. She was part of the whole conspiracy. She was part of, part of mm. the the abductions. So you know, not not a top notch person herself. Yeah, to fair. be to be to be fair. Um, but you know, so he was doing these hemorrhaging trials, also altitude effects. So the Luftwaffe, the the German Air Force, they essentially donated this pressure chamber. And what they were doing, they were giving people oxygen masks. I say say people, uh, they were giving Jews oxygen masks in the pressure chamber, changing the pressure, the atmospheric pressure in the chamber up to something at least 14,000 feet. I've seen a few different studies. They sometimes say 60,000 which is very, very high. That's double what a standard plane flies. Yes. You fly at 30,000 feet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the reason this was important to the Germans was because the Allied planes could get higher. Uh, they, they could reach higher altitudes. Mm. And so it was really important to them to find out um, the effects of altitude. And then also these German pilots, when they were ejecting, um, you know, the effect of As suddenly yes, right, coming and, and down. parachuted. Yeah. So they, they were increasing the pressure in the chambers to simulate a parachute descent. 
and very often they were getting these air embolisms so they, you know they were getting these pockets of air in their brain and all sorts of terrible things were taking place and sometimes they were even drowning them afterwards to simulate falling into the sea because that was very common they were over water when they ejected and you know these people were terribly terribly let's say injured by this pressure chamber and then there was a vivisection they were dissected right so their chests were opened up their their brains and heads were opened up and some in some cases their hearts were still beating when this happened this is the sorts of things that Russia was involved in also like you said with it's the Japanese Hannibal Lecter. it's this is Hannibal like Lecter. what Hannibal Lecter does yeah yeah just you know people that are still alive just opening their heads up I mean, hypothermia. You mentioned that with the fingers. Hypothermia. Yeah. They Frostbite, were, yeah. They did 400 experiments on about 280 to 300 subjects. Um, 89 of them died. So it's surprising considering what I'm about to tell you they did. But the aim was to find the most effective way of, of rewarming these pilots who parachuted into the sea, like I said. So make them really cold and then see if we can warm them up. And yeah. Save them, yeah. Exactly. And so the victims which is, I think, the most appropriate term, not even subjects, and certainly not participants. They are victims. The victims. victims. Absolutely. They, they were forced to remain in a tank of iced water for about three hours at a time. Um, there was an interesting finding, which the, uh, the UK and the US were very interested in, in you know, getting their hands on in terms of documentation, which was that it's only when the back of the neck was submerged in the iced cold water that fatalities took place. So there were certain... There were certain life jackets that you could wear and that they did wear when they were testing it that either did or did not cover the back of the neck. And of course, when the back of the neck is in ice cold water, it basically cools the brainstem, the part at the bottom of your brain, uh, as you know, but for anyone listening, the, the, you know, the part at the bottom of your brain that is essentially the earliest and most fundamental part of your brain, the part that when that thing shuts down, you are defined as being dead. Uh, that thing, when that cools down, because of the back of your neck, the occiput, when that's cooled down, you're dead. So this is that was a finding. Brain dead. All your brain autonomic dead. stuff, like, you know, your, the stuff you can't feel, like yeah. your internal organs, they might all still be ticking over. But mm. being clinically dead is when your brain is dead. And you're not okay. you're, all your organs might still be working um, just autonomically. But to yeah. be brain dead is death, effectively. Yeah. The death of the conscious thing. And it's interesting that you say the back of the neck uh, wear a scarf. Why do we wear scarves? Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. But that's what they found. And, you know, they had other people that were standing. I mean, actually... Th- just th- interestingly, uh, just as an anecdote, Yeah, no, just, yeah. Um, in cinema, yeah. um, you might have seen Pulp Fiction. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So when you first see Marcellus Wallace, you remember Marcellus Wallace? Mm-hmm. Uh, the first time you see him, it's the shot of Bruce Willis is there and the back of Marce- uh, Marcellus Wallace's head. Okay. And on the back of his neck is a plaster and that's why Marcellus Wallace is trying to get his briefcase back because in his briefcase is his soul that (laughs) in mythology you take the soul from the back of the neck and that's why they open the briefcase and it's oh it's beautiful it's beautiful he's trying to get his soul back and that's why there's a plaster at the back of the neck so that's very very interesting that if you that's if you freeze that you know yeah interesting yeah the back of your neck very important wear a scarf everybody when you go out at least a snood, ladies and gentlemen, please. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, we're laughing, but the, you know, these are people that sort of died Trying in to a make tank light, of... Trying to make just, yeah. 
I mean, yeah, people that died in tanks of ice-cold water. Um, interestingly, there was one case where they, they disputed the evidence in the documentation after the war, because they said these two Russians, they were still apparently talking to each other uh, in two ice-cold uh, ice cold baths of water after three hours, and physicians were like, that's not possible. Like, within ten minutes, you ain't making any noises. You ain't talking to anyone. But apparently after three hours, they were still chatting. Hmm. But I was like, if I can believe any... If I can believe anyone was having a conversation after three hours in ice cold water, it was the, it was the Russians. <laughs> <laughs> Hard, hardy people. But, um, plunge pool. Plunge <laughs> it was yeah. a plunge pool, yeah. Yeah, but so, yeah, so it wasn't just the Jews. They were also using prisoners of war and, and whatnot. The Russians took a bit of a beating in these particular studies. And they were also standing people outside as well. I mean, there was one piece of documentation where 30 people were forced to stand naked in open air um, in the winter. Uh, for 9 to 14 hours uh, in temperatures below freezing, of course. Um, and they were trying different methods. They they took four gypsy women and used body warmth and found that was very ineffective. Uh, just huddled them up. Just huddled them up around them. And they, they felt that... Uh, th- th- like penguins. Yeah, like penguins. And they, they found the best method was a hot bath. Um, so, you know, they were putting people from ice-cold situations into hot baths. Um, so they were finding out things that were useful for them, but at what cost you know and the most some of the ones you will really see is the Dachau uh, the Dachau seawater experiments you can google this this is one of the very famous ones they were essentially just making people drink seawater until they died and found out the, the bloody obvious <clears throat> they had four conditions they were they were basically given shipwreck rations and there were four groups one had no water obviously they died uh, it's it barely it's not even worth to, you know. It's not use, even, it's not even worth having, having that in the experiment. No, it's like we know that control condition is yeah. death. There's no water. It's the same like why stand people naked outside in freezing cold? Like you know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, ordinary seawater, seawater processed by the Burke method, which is which is essentially just putting a certain chemical which did absolutely nothing with the water. It was almost meant to be a way of making seawater digestible. Right. Um, and that was one that was was essentially um, promoted by this rasher. Uh, didn't work. And then seawater treated to remove the salt, the Schaefer method. Desalinization. Desalinization. And and it was known that this was a... I mean, they knew that taking the salt out made it drinkable. Hmm. So nothing, nothing was found out from this study. No discoveries were made. They basically just found that damage to the kidney occurred after six days and death after 12. That's what they found out. But there was no discoveries as to what you could and couldn't have. That's, That's just what was going so on. Little. It's like you could probably say to someone, right, you might get three days of extra life should you crash land on a on a desert island and have some salt water. You might be able to get three days out of it before you die from well, drinking. Th- th- that's what they did find. They said some salt water is better than no water. Mm. So I mean I guess that's a useful reason to have that control. But at the expense of people dying. Yeah. A I substantial mean, amount of people dying. Yeah, so, you know. But, but that all then predates Joseph Mengele. Joseph Mengele is the guy that you will see in the films. This is the person that's you know really well documented. Uh, he's the guy that collected twins in Auschwitz. So when there were selections taking place, it was good to be a twin. Well, good, in scare quotes. You weren't sent straight to the chambers. They would experiment mm. on you first. So he'd go, and the officers the officers would go and collect twins. This Mengele, he was an anthropologist who then became uh, a medical doctor. And he got the Iron Cross twice. You know, the second time was for, you know, pulling, pulling his colleagues out of a burning tank. So, 
you know, by all accounts, he sounds like a better guy than Shiro Ishii, but mm. I mean, what he then goes on to do is just absolutely horrific. Uh, in 43, so just before the end of the war, he's sent to Auschwitz, and there's Birkenau um, nearby as well, which is where there was like, you know, way more um, gas chambers and crematoriums. But his primary duties were sanitation. It was making sure people didn't get infected. It was making sure that they selected the right useful people. So basically a racist selector. And uh, there's there's something you can see online. It went viral, you know, a few, maybe a, a few months ago. Um, but this Eva Moses core, she did this. She, there's a video of her. She gives this, this account, but there's also written accounts. She was one of the twins. And essentially what it was is that Mengele, he used to train under somebody or he used to, he was an assistant to a researcher who was really interested in twins and genetics. And Mengele saw this as a way of engineering, like you've so, said already, it's just a way of engineering, engineering an Aryan, like the Russians were interested in doing, uh, like the Japanese were interested in maintaining. Uh, Mengele saw this as a way of engineering or learning how to engineer Aryans. And with the twins, were twins specifically selected because at that time it was believed these are identical copies of one person, so we've got a couple of... Yes. Right. Yeah, I mean, there, there was other things as well. You know, some non-identical twins were also selected, mm -hmm. um, so you could claim that two siblings were twins, uh, non-identical twins. Um, but yes, that's one of the main reasons. And they would do all sorts of sick experiments, like, you know, injecting... Um, dyes into their irises to see if they could change their eye colour, all this sort of thing. Totally Because you need to do that, don't you? You need to you need to do that when you're taking over the world. You need to make sure that you can change people's eye colours to blue and their skin colour to white and yeah. their hair to blonde and It's just the worst form of racism. Can we change people's eye colour? And they were trialing this on twins, you know, two twins. Do they change their eye colour back to it, it's horrific. And I'm just gonna quickly read some quotes um, from Eva Moses' cause testimony. And the first quote is really about bioethics. She said, No one ever attempted to explain anything to us. No one explained why we were in Mengele's laboratory, what was going to be done to us, or what would be our ultimate destiny. There was never an attempt to minimise our risks. In fact, we were there for one reason, to be used as experimental objects and then to be killed. Mengele had two types of research programmes, one set of experiments dealt with genetics and the other with germ warfare. In the germ experiments, Mengele would inject one twin with the germ. Then, if and when that twin died, he would kill the other twin in order to compare the organs at autopsy. That's one quote. Another quote, she says, One of the twins, who was 19 years old, told of experiments involving a set of teenage boys and teenage girls. Cross-transfusions were carried out in an attempt to make boys into girls and girls into boys. Some of the boys were castrated. Transfusion reactions were similarly studied in adolescent twins. And then another quote, and you know, this is just about Mengele's general interests. She says, in the area of genetics, Mengele collected dwarfs, giants, hunchbacks, and people with abnormalities and defects. He studied genetic traits in the hope of purifying the Aryan super race. He closely monitored eyes and hair color. Uh, end quote. And I should say, obviously, those terms now are not in use, but that was sort of a direct quote mm. of, of either yeah, at yeah, the absolutely, time. Absolutely. And a couple more quotes. Uh, this, this, to me, just, this really shows how evil this man was and how unnecessary this was 
Quote, a set of gypsy twins was brought back from Mengele's lab after they were sewn back to back. Mengele had attempted to create a Siamese twin by connecting blood vessels and organs. The twins screamed day and night until gangrene set in, and after three days they died. Mengele also attempted to connect the urinary tract of a seven-year-old girl to her own colon. Many experiments were performed on the male and female genitals. It's the human centipede. Yes. It's so ridiculous. It's yes. like... I'm sorry, I'm just going to say it. That guy is a sick fuck. Yes. He is a sick fuck. Yes. It's, there's no other words it for him. It was his side hustle as well. This wasn't even something that was from above. You know, it wasn't dictated to him by Himmler. I mean, Himmler enjoyed hearing about the results, but this wasn't his day job. It was his initiative. You know, he, uh, it, he it was his it hobby. On his own time, yeah. Yes, on his own time. Very well resourced to do this hobby, but it was a hobby. It was an interest. He was, like you say, a sick fuck. And, you know, to round off this part about the Nazis, it's just the last quote from Eva really puts a finer point on the Japanese, the Nazis, the Russians, everything we've spoken about. She says, The scientists of the world must remember that the research is being done for the sake of mankind and not for the sake of science. Scientists must never detach themselves from the humans they serve. Thanks for listening to Abstracts. Music, as always, was Coffee by Campo. The track's available on the free music archive. We'll leave a description. All references for this episode are available on our website. So for those, and to get in touch, head over to abstractspodcast.com. That's abstractspodcast.com. Don't forget to tune in to part two of this episode and catch you in a bit.